You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 13, given in Berlin on the 12th of January, 1909. During this winter, as I have stated already in these sessions, the aim is to compile the materials, the different building blocks of each lecture, so that together they eventually offer deeper insight into the nature of the human being and various other things connected with human life and evolution, thus leading us ever deeper into secrets of the universe. Today I want to recall the lecture before last as our point of departure. You will remember that we spoke about a certain rhythm that exists in relation to the four aspects or levels of the human being. That is where we will begin today, trying to answer this question. How can such knowledge, drawing on deeper foundations, give us insight into the need for and aim of the anthroposophical spiritual movement? We will need to link two apparently very divergent things today. You recall that certain relationships exist between the human eye, capital, astral body, ether body, and physical body. What can be said of the fourth level, the I, appears, one might say, in the most tangible form to us if we think of the two alternating states of consciousness which the I undergoes during the twenty-four hour period of a day. This single day with its twenty-four hours, during which the I experiences day and night, sleeping and waking, can in a sense be regarded as one unit. If we say that what the I experiences during a single day is subject to the number one, then the number corresponding in similar fashion to our astral body is seven. While we can say that the I, as it is today, returns to its starting point after twenty-four hours or one day, our astral body does the same in seven days. Let us examine this in somewhat more detail. Think of waking up in the morning, which involves what people commonly regard, regard, though, of course, wrongly, as surfacing from the darkness of unconsciousness, so that the objects of the physical, sensory world reappear around you. You experience this in the morning and usually at least have the same experience again 24 hours later. That is what usually happens, and we can say that our I returns to its starting point after one day of twenty-four hours. In the same way, we can seek corresponding relationships for the astral body, and will find that where the regularity proper to the human astral body actually manifests it, actually manifests, it returns to the same point again after seven days. 
Whereas the eye passes through a one-day cycle, the astral body goes a good deal more slowly, passing through its cycle in seven days. The ether body passes through its cycle in four times seven days, returning to the same point again after this period. And now, I would ask you to note what I said in the lecture before last. There is not the same regularity for the physical body as for the astral and ether body, but we can establish an approximate cycle of roughly ten times twenty-eight days, after which it returns to its starting point. You know, of course, that there is an important distinction to be made in that the human female ether body is male in character, while the male ether body is female. This can show us that in certain respects there is an inevitable irregularity between the ether body rhythm and that of the physical body. But generally speaking, the ratios between the four levels of human nature, what we can call their speed of rotation, are 1 to 7 to 4 times 7 to 10 times 7 times 4. Naturally, this is only a metaphor, for rotations do not occur as such, but cyclical repetitions of the same states. These are rhythmic ratios. A fortnight ago, I indicated that occurrences in our daily life can only be understood if we know that such things underlie the physical world of the senses. And in a public lecture, too, I pointed to a remarkable fact which even the most materialistic of researchers and physicians cannot deny, since it exists as a reality and cannot be classified as a, quote, phantom of superstition, close quote. This is the fact, which ought really to give people pause for thought, that a crisis occurs seven days after pneumonia begins, which the patient must be helped to survive. Fever suddenly drops, and if one does not help the patient over this crisis, he may not recover. This fact is commonly acknowledged, but the starting date of the illness is not always correctly ascertained. And if one does not know what day the disease began, it is easy to be unaware of its seventh day. This is a fact, nevertheless. And so we must ask why fever drops on the seventh day of pneumonia. Why does something specific happen on day seven? Only someone who can look behind the veils of existence, seeing into the world of spirit, underlying physical phenomena, knows of these rhythms and at the same time understands what gives rise to phenomena such as fever. What is fever, really? Why does it arise? Fever is not disease, but on the contrary, something the organism invokes to combat the actual process of disease. It is the organism's defense against disease when there is some deficiency or damage in the organism, say in the lungs. When we are healthy and all our internal functions are in harmony, these internal functions will inevitably be disturbed if an organ, any part of the human body, suffers a disorder in this case, the whole organism will try to mobilize, drawing from itself the forces to remedy this specific disorder. 
a revolution occurs in the whole organism. When no enemy is present to be combated, the organism has no need to muster its forces. Fever is the expression of this mustering of forces in the organism. Someone who can look behind the veils of existence knows that the germ of different human organs was laid down and developed at very different periods of human evolution. Spiritual scientific, quote, study of the human body, close quote, as we may call it, is the most complex imaginable field, since this human organism is very diverse and its various organs originated at very different times. The original germ was later taken up again and developed further. Everything in the human organism is an expression, an outcome of the human being's higher aspects, such that any part of the physical body expresses the laws of higher levels. The lungs, as we refer to them today, are originally intrinsically connected with the human astral body and have something to do with it. We will return to the subject of how the lungs are connected with the astral body, how the very first primal beginnings of the lungs were incorporated into the human being at the planetary stage preceding our earth, that of old moon, and how higher spiritual beings, as it were, instilled the astral body in us. Today we will just note that the lungs are, among much else, an expression of the astral body. The true expression of the astral body is, of course, the nervous system, but the human being is complex, and evolutionary processes always run parallel with each other. The incipient lungs arose along with the evolution of the astral body and incorporation of today's nervous system. Because of this, the lungs engage in a certain way in the astral body's rhythms, which is subject to a periodicity governed by the number seven. Symptoms of fever are connected with certain functions of the ether body. Something has to happen in the ether body for fever to take its course. Fever, therefore, stands somehow within the same rhythm as the ether body. Every fever is involved in this rhythm. But how? We must now clarify the following. Since the ether body accomplishes its cycle in four times seven days, it moves a good deal more slowly than the astral body, whose cycle lasts seven days. If we relate the rhythmic periodicity of the ether body to that of the astral body, we can compare this with the hands of a clock. The hour hand goes once around the clock face, while the minute hand completes twelve circuits during the same period giving the ratio of 1 to 12. Now imagine glancing at the clock at midday when the hour hand stands directly over the minute hand so that the two are superimposed. Then the minute hand continues to move, completing one more circuit. Returning to the 12, it will no longer cover the hour hand since the latter has moved to the 1. And the two hands will then only coincide again after around 5 minutes. In other words, the minute hand will not cover the hour hand again after an hour, but after an hour and a little over five minutes. The relationship between the cycle of the astral body 
and that of the ether body, is similar to this. Let us assume that your astral body, which is, of course, always linked with the ether body, is in a certain condition in relation to the latter. Now the astral body starts to rotate. After seven days, when it returns to its original condition, it no longer coincides with the ether body, for the latter has by then advanced through a quarter of its own cycle. At the end of seven days, therefore, the condition of the astral body no longer coincides with the same condition of the ether body, but instead with a condition that lags behind the original one by a quarter of the cycle. Now assume that the disease in question develops. Here a quite specific condition of the astral body is connected with a quite specific condition of the ether body. At this moment, fever arises with the participation of these two concurrent conditions as a mustering of forces to combat the enemy. After seven days, the astral body coincides with a quite different point of the ether body. The ether body requires more than the strength to produce fever, for otherwise, once it had got the fever going, this fever would never cease. After seven days, the point of the ether body, which now coincides with the point of the astral body that engendered fever seven days before, has the tendency to remedy the fever to assuage and diminish it. If after seven days the patient has overcome the disorder, things will go well. But if not, and if the astral body now has no inclination to fight off the illness, it will encounter an unfavorable condition where the ether body tends to diminish the fever. We must take careful note of these two superimposed points, these points of coincidence and we could establish their presence in all kinds of factors relating to human life. Precisely through these rhythms, through mysterious inner mechanisms, the whole nature of the human being could become clear to us. The ether body does indeed tend to express itself in a cycle of four times seven. In other illnesses, in turn, you can observe the special importance of the fourteenth day, thus twice seven. In certain conditions, we can demonstrate that paroxysm will be particularly pronounced after four times seven days. And in this case, if the severity of the disease abates, there can be sure hope of recovery. All these things are connected with rhythms, notably the ones we touched on three days ago, which we have now examined in more detail. Such matters, seemingly difficult but understandable, nevertheless, allow us to delve a little behind the surface of the physical world of the senses, and we must delve ever deeper. Now, let us ask about the specific origins of such rhythms. These rhythms originate in great cosmic relationships. We have repeatedly described the past evolution through Saturn, Sun, Moon, and Earth stages of what we call the four bodies, or aspects of the human being, physical body, ether body, astral body, and I. If we look back to the old moon embodiment, we discover that this too separated from the sun for a certain period. At that time, however, a great part of what is today's moon was connected with the earth. A sun stood separate from it, 
though and when such heavenly bodies belong together their forces, which are in turn only an expression of their living entities, always exert an influence on the regularity of the life of their indwelling entities. The time a planet takes to orbit the sun, or that a satellite takes to orbit its planet, is certainly not accidental or unconnected with living realities, but is governed by beings we have come to know in the hierarchies of spirits. We have learned indeed that the orbits of heavenly bodies are not caused by mere soulless forces. On one occasion we described the grotesque fashion in which a modern physicist demonstrates the Kant-Laplace theory by means of a floating drop of fat. A cardboard disc is inserted through the drop of fat in line with the equator, while a needle pierces it from above, and now the whole thing is rotated, whereupon small drops split off from the large one and are drawn into the same rotational movement. Thus an experimenter shows how a planetary system arises on a small scale, and from this in general the physicist concludes how our solar system must have arisen. The factor it is otherwise a good idea to forget, oneself, is a stumbling block in this instance. For you see, the good fellow will usually overlook the fact that the little planetary system could not form without him cranking the engine. Of course, such experiments can be done and are very useful, but in doing them we ought not to forget the vital factor. Countless people mistakenly absorb such suggestions, forgetting that their esteemed professor himself was the primum mobile. There is no giant professor out in the universe, it is true, but his place is taken by the hierarchies of spiritual beings who govern the heavenly bodies' motions and cycles. They do indeed configure cosmic matter so that individual planets orbit one another. And if, as will be possible some day, we could study in more detail the movements of the planets, which constitute a unified system, we would rediscover in them the rhythms of our own supersensible bodies. Initially, though, we need only highlight one thing. Materialistic ways of thinking mean that people today laugh at how in former times certain human circumstances were linked with the moon's quarters. But in a wonderful fashion, the moon cosmically reflects a relationship between the astral body and the ether body. The moon passes through its cycle in four times seven days. These are the conditions of the ether body, and the four times seven ether body and the four times seven ether body conditions are fully reflected in the moon's four quarters. It is far from nonsense to seek in the moon's quarters a connection with the fever symptoms we described above. After seven days, a new quarter is present, you see, like a new quarter of the ether body, so that the astral body coincides with a different quarter of the ether body. This relationship of human astral and ether bodies was in fact originally governed by the fact that spiritual beings caused the moon to orbit the earth in a corresponding way. You can gather that these things are connected from the fact that even modern medicine draws on an old vestige of rhythmic insight. 
It is because the rhythm of the physical body consists of ten times twenty-eight, so that after ten times twenty-eight days, the physical body returns, as it were, to the point it occupied previously, that there is a period of roughly ten times twenty-eight days between human conception and birth, ten sidereal months. All these things are connected with the way great cosmic relationships are regulated. The human being is a microcosm that faithfully reflects great universal relationships and is constituted by them. Today we will consider the evolutionary period that falls in the middle of Atlantean times, a very important point in Earth's evolution. In humanity's evolution we distinguish three previous races, the first, the Polaric, the second, the Hyperborean, and the third, the Lemurian race. We are now in the fifth race, which will be followed by two further ones, and the Atlantean period lies at the midpoint of evolution. The middle of Atlantean times is the most important point in Earth's evolution. If we were to go back before this time, we would find that the outward conditions of human life exactly reflect cosmic conditions. In those times, things would have gone very badly for human beings if they had done what they do today. Today, people no longer orientate themselves much in accordance with cosmic conditions. In our cities, of course, circumstances are such that a person will stay awake when he ought to sleep and sleep when he ought to be awake. If anything similar to staying awake at night and sleeping during the day had occurred in Lemurian times, and if people had paid such little attention to how outer phenomena correspond with inner processes, they would have been unable to live at all. Such a thing, of course, would have been impossible, since in those times it was entirely self-evident that people's inner rhythm was governed by an external rhythm. In those days people lived in harmony with the course of the sun and moon, precisely attuning to these the rhythm of their astral body and ether body. Let us take a clock once more. In a sense, a clock, too, is oriented to the great course of the heavens. Whenever the hour hand coincides with the minute hand at twelve o'clock, this is because a particular solar and sidereal constellation exists. The clock is governed by this and runs badly if a day later it does not bring these two hands together when this same sidereal constellation occurs. From the observatory at Enkeplatz, electrical connections daily regulate the clocks in Britain. So we can say that these movements, these rhythms, correspond to the clock hands, which are even coordinated with them on a daily basis. Our clock runs accurately when it corresponds to the master clock, which in turn accords with the cosmos. In ancient times, in fact, people did not need clocks, for they themselves were clocks. They regulated the course of their lives, of which they had a very tangible sense, according to cosmic conditions and relationships. The human being really was a clock, and if he had not oriented himself to cosmic conditions, then exactly the same would have happened to him 
as happens with a clock if it is at odds with outer reality. It runs badly. And human beings would then also have been in a bad way. The inner rhythm had to accord with the outer. A major aspect of human progress on earth is that since the middle of Atlantean times, outer and inner circumstances have no longer been in absolute accord. Something else has arisen. Imagine if someone had the quirk of not wanting the two hands of his clock to coincide at twelve o'clock. Let's assume he set his clock so that it showed three o'clock at that moment. His clock would show 4 p.m. when it was 1 p.m. for everyone else, and 5 p.m. when it was 2 p.m. But this would not alter the workings of his clock. It would just be out of sequence with outer circumstances. After 24 hours, his clock would show 3 o'clock again and will therefore be out of sync with cosmic relationships. In its own internal rhythm, though, it will accord with them, simply transposing or shifting it. In the same way, the human being's rhythm was transposed, and we would never have become autonomous beings if our whole activity had been tied to the apron strings of cosmic conditions. We acquired freedom precisely by releasing ourselves from the external rhythm, while nevertheless retaining the same inner rhythm. We became like a clock that no longer coincides with cosmic events at key junctures, yet still inwardly accords with them. In ancient times of the primeval past, a human being could only be conceived at a very specific zodiac constellation and was then born ten lunar months later. This concurrence of conception with a cosmic condition fell away. But the rhythm itself remained, just as the rhythm of a clock is retained even if one sets it to three o'clock at midday. However, besides our own condition, periodicity itself also shifted. But if we ignore this cosmic shift, something very particular happened to the human being by virtue of the fact that he detached himself from cosmic circumstances and is therefore no longer a clock in the true sense of the word. What occurred for him is what would happen to someone who sets his clock fast by three hours, but then forgets how much he has advanced it, and therefore no longer knows how things stand. The same happened to us during earth evolution, once we departed from our clock-like relationship with the cosmos. In certain respects we caused disorder in our astral body. The more the circumstances of human life correlated with corporeal reality, the more the ancient rhythm was retained. But as circumstances adapted increasingly to spiritual reality, the greater was the disorder into which they fell. I would like to explain this from another perspective as well. Besides human beings, we know of beings at a higher level than humanity on earth today. We know of the sons of life, or angels, who passed through their, in quotes, humanity stage on Old Moon. We know the fire spirits, or archangels, who underwent stages of human evolution on Earth's old sun embodiment. And likewise we know the primal powers, who passed through their humanity stage on Old Saturn. In cosmic evolution, these beings ran ahead of human beings.
If we studied them today, we would find that they are far more spiritual in nature than the human being, and therefore also live in higher worlds. But in relation to what we have spoken of today, they find themselves in a quite different position from us. They orient themselves spiritually in full accord with the rhythm of the cosmos. An angel would never think in such a disordered way as a human being, simply because his trains of thought are governed by the cosmic powers which orient him. It is simply inconceivable for a being such as an angel to think in any other way than in harmony with great spiritual cosmic processes. The laws of angelic logic are inscribed in the universal harmony. They have no need of textbooks, whereas we do because we have brought disorder into our inner modes of thinking. People no longer perceive how to orient themselves in accordance with the great sidereal script. These angels know how the cosmos unfolds, and their trains of thinking correspond to a regulated rhythm. When the human being began to walk on earth in his current form, he detached himself from this rhythm, and thus his thinking, feelings, and emotions are random. Whereas regularity prevails in things we have less influence over, the astral and ether body, irregularity and arrhythmia, lack of rhythm, have entered the aspects we ourselves have taken in hand, namely our sentient soul, mind-soul, and consciousness-soul. The least of this is apparent in the way we turn night into day in big cities. What is far more significant is that people have sundered themselves from the great universal rhythms in their mode of thinking. The way they think at every moment, in some respects, contradicts the great motions of the spheres. Now please don't imagine that I have said all this to propound a worldview that seeks to reintegrate human beings into a rhythm of this kind. We had to emerge from the ancient rhythm of existence, and progress, excuse me, and progress depends on this. When, quote, back to nature, close quote, prophets preach today, they want to push life back to where it started, rather than advance it. Dabbling like this in vague ideas about going back to nature shows a failure to understand evolution. A movement urging people today to eat certain foods only at certain seasons, since nature itself indicates this by growing particular foods at specific times of year, represents a completely abstract kind of amateurism. Evolution consists precisely in increasing human independence from an external rhythm. But we should not lose the ground under our feet either. Our true salutary progress is not furthered by returning to the old rhythm of life, asking, say, how one can live in harmony with the four quarters of the moon. This is a throwback to ancient times, when it was necessary for us to be a kind of seal or imprint of the cosmos. On the other hand, though, it is also important not to think that we can live without rhythm. In the same way that we become internalized from without, we must now reconfigure ourselves rhythmically from within. This is the important thing. Rhythm must imbue our inner life.
As rhythm developed the cosmos, so must we. If we wish to participate in the development of a new cosmos, permeate ourselves with new rhythm. It is characteristic of our age that it has lost the old rhythm without as yet developing a new one. As human beings we have outgrown nature. If we regard nature as the outward manifestation of spirit without so far growing back into spirit, let me read that again, as human beings we have outgrown nature, if we regard nature as the outward manifestation of spirit, without, so far, growing back into spirit. We are still dangling somewhere between nature and spirit, and this characterizes our age. This floundering about between nature and spirit reached its culmination in the second third of the nineteenth century. This was why the beings who recognize and interpret the signs of the times asked what needed to be done to prevent human beings losing rhythm altogether and allow an inner rhythm to penetrate them once again. Disorder and irregularity characterize modern culture. Whenever you see a cultural artifact of any kind, the first thing that will strike you about it is its disorderly, inwardly irregular nature. This is true in almost all areas. Only disciplines still based on solid old traditions still retained something of their old regularity. In new fields, we still need to create a new regularity. This is why, despite ascertaining facts, such as the drop of temperature in a pneumonia patient on day seven of the disease, the reasons thought up to explain this are simply chaotic. When someone thinks about such things, instead of thinking in a regular ordered way, he piles a whole mishmash of thoughts on top of one another. In all scientific disciplines, researchers take a verifiable fact and then stir up a pile of thoughts about it without any inner regularity. People today have no inner lines of thought or rhythm of thinking, and humanity would lapse into complete decadence if it did not, in fact, absorb an inner rhythm. Take a look at spiritual science from this perspective for a moment. You can see what sort of waters you enter when you start engaging with spiritual science. First you hear, and gradually come to understand, that the human being consists of four aspects physical body, ether body, astral body, and I. And then you hear how the I acts upon the others, transforming the astral body into manas, or spirit self, transforming the ether body into buddhi, or life spirit, and transforming our physical principle, the physical body, into spirit man, or atma. Now, just consider for a moment how this basic formula, as it were, of our spiritual science informs so much of what we study. Think of the many themes, basic themes really, that were built up repeatedly in our overall edifice of thoughts from an initial schema of physical body, ether body, astral body and I. As you know, some people even grow weary of hearing these fundamental facts repeatedly reiterated at public lectures. But it is and remains a sure thread through our developing sequences of thought. 
these four aspects of human nature, the way they work together, and then in turn the higher transformation of the lower three levels, of the third into the fifth, the second into the sixth, and the first into the seventh aspect of our being. If you now take all of them together, there are seven, physical body, ether body, astral body, I, spirit self, life spirit, and spirit man. And taking what underlies them, physical body, ether body, astral body, and I, there are four. Thus, in considering these sequences, you repeat in your thoughts the great rhythm of seven to four, or four to seven. You reproduce from within you this great external rhythm, repeating the rhythm that once existed on a large scale in the universal cosmos. You give birth to it again. In doing so, you are laying down the plan, the foundation, for your thought system in the same way that the gods once laid down the plan for the world's wisdom. In this way, a cosmos of thought evolves within the soul when we revive within us the inner rhythm of number, as I have just outlined. Human beings have emancipated themselves from external rhythm. Through a spiritual science worthy of the name, we return to rhythm, building from within outward a world edifice that bears rhythm within it. And if we pass on to the cosmos and consider the Earth's past forms, studying Saturn, Sun, Moon, and Earth, we find a fourfold sequence in which the old moon stage returns in spiritualized form at the fifth stage as Jupiter. Old Sun returns at the sixth stage as Venus, and old Saturn reappears at the seventh stage as Vulcan. Thus in Saturn, Sun, Moon, Earth, Jupiter, Venus, and Vulcan, we have our sevenfold evolutionary phases. Our physical body, as it is today, evolved through the four stages, through Saturn, Sun, Moon, and Earth. In future, it will gradually be wholly reconfigured and spiritualized. So, here too, if we look back into the past, we have the number four, and the number three as we look toward the future, thus four to three, or if we include the past in the whole sequence of evolution, four to seven. Though we have been preoccupied with our spiritual, scientific work and activity for many years now, we are really still only at the beginning of it. For only the first time today we drew attention to what people sought when they pointed to the inner number upon which all pneumonia are founded. Thus we see how the human being had to emerge from the original rhythm in order to secure his freedom. But we must find within ourselves again the laws whereby we regulate the clock, our astral body. And spiritual science is this great regulator, since it is in harmony with the great laws of the cosmos that the seer perceives. The future, as human beings create it, will show the same great numerical relationships as in the cosmos's past, but at a higher level. This is why human beings will give birth to the future out of themselves, out of number, just as the gods once formed the cosmos out of number. 
and in this way we see how spiritual science is connected with the great course of the universe. When we realize what underlies us in the world of spirit as fourfold and sevenfold number, we can grasp why we must also find in this world of spirit the impulse to develop further humanity's whole previous evolutionary trajectory. And we can understand why, precisely in an age when human beings' thinking, feeling, and will life have become extremely inwardly chaotic, the individualities tasked with interpreting the signs of the times have pointed to a wisdom that enables us to develop our life of soul in a regulated way so that new rhythm emerges within us. We learn to think rhythmically as is necessary for the future when we think in a way that is informed by these fundamental relationships. And human beings will absorb and integrate ever more of what they are born from. Initially they extract what they must regard as the blueprint of the cosmos. Then they advance further feeling themselves imbued by certain fundamental powers and forces and ultimately by originating beings. All of this stands at an initial point of departure today and we experience the importance and world significance of the anthroposophical mission if rather than regarding it as an arbitrary act of this or that individual as some isolated factor, we make efforts to grasp it through the whole inner workings and impetus of our being. Then we can reach the point of saying that it is not simply up to us to accept or reject this anthroposophical mission, but that if we wish to understand our times, we must perceive and permeate ourselves with thoughts of the divine world of spirit upon which anthroposophy is founded. And in turn we must then allow this to flow out into the world so that our actions and existence develop not into a chaos, but into a cosmos, in the same way that we were originally born from a cosmos. The end of Lecture 13